This is the Gender Justice Brief, a podcast of gender justice. We fight for gender equity by breaking down legal, structural, and cultural barriers and expanding protections. We want to see all people thrive, regardless of their gender, gender expression, and sexual orientation. Season 3, Episode 1 of the Gender Justice Brief, and we are taking you to Washington, D.C., where Megan Peterson, the Executive Director of Gender Justice, is meeting with the Executive Director of the Women's Equality Center, Paula Avila Guyen. Welcome. This is Megan Peterson. I'm the Executive Director of Gender Justice. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm in Washington, D.C. today for a wonderful convening of um, advocates and activists from across the globe, as well as U.S.-based advocates and abortion providers talking about reproductive rights, health, and justice through an international lens. I'm very excited to have with us today a guest with the Women's Equality Center and from Colombia originally. And we're just going to get into talking about the green wave and really, I think, what we can learn in the United States from the successes and experiences of of advocates who have really moved the bar forward on abortion access in other countries. Yes. Thank you so much for the invitation. I am really excited to be here. Paula Villagin, I am the executive director of the Women's Equality Center. She hers area pronouns, and um, I am originally from Colombia, as you say, but I have been living in the United States for 16 years now uh, as an immigrant, and uh, I live in the state of New York. So at this point, I also feel a New Yorker, <laughs> but in in reality, I spend all my time um, everywhere um, in Latin America mm-hmm. doing work for reproductive rights. And what WEC does is supporting the work of advocates and on the ground with strategic communications and advocacy campaigns to try to move the, the needle and um and trying to change the way that we fight for abortion rights and justice. You've been at the forefront of the movement for reproductive freedom in Latin America, and that's become known as the Green Wave, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with, but it might also be a new term mm-hmm. for folks. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what is the Green Wave? Why was why is it called that? And just you know some of the uh, significance of, of that movement. Absolutely. So the Green Wave on La Marea Verde was born in Argentina, mm-hmm. and it all started with the creation of a symbol. There was a green handkerchief. Mm-hmm. So uh, Argentina um, traditionally has had a fight for uh, human rights and civil rights for. Many years is one of those countries that has a very strong civil society. And during the Argentinian dictatorship, there was uh, a massive kidnapping by the state of mm-hmm. children. Mm-hmm. And that created a movement that's called the Mothers of La Plaza de Mayo, Las Madres de La Plaza de Mayo. And they started using a symbol to protest and to create resistance. There was, they will wear a handkerchief, a white handkerchief around their head. Mm-hmm. And they just will march with that. And in many cases, because protest was also being criminalized, they just wearing the, the handkerchief was a way to protest, right? Mm-hmm. Just something that simple, but it became really powerful. So when the advocates for abortion uh, rights in Argentina, La Campaña Nacional por el Aborto Legal y Seguro, 
So they need to try to expand the fight and create a symbol that will unite multiple organizations and multiple coalitions. And they didn't belong to one, but to everybody. They took the symbol of the handkerchief mm -hmm. from Las Madres and La Plaza de Mayo, but they decided to make it green because green represents life. Green represents hope. And for them, abortion is die, is, mm -hmm. is, is life and is hope. Um, and it, honestly, when you heard, hear the stories from them, they say it was a fun conversation in which they just decided to do a few of these pañuelos, this mm -hmm. that we call the handkerchiefs. And they were like, well, you know, they never expected that they was going to come here. So fast forward 10 years later, mm -hmm. uh, Argentina legalized abortion. And it doesn't in a way they involves massive mobilizations. I am talking about millions of people on the street, just all wearing green. Some of being part of that, like being there mm -hmm. and seeing the power of the energy of that crowd is just one of the most powerful things that I have experienced. And the green became the green way. And mm -hmm. in the course of three years, uh, starting with Argentina in December of 2020, then landscape of reproductive rights has changed in Latin America. Um, so it started Argentina, then it became Colombia um, by the decision of the Constitutional Court of February 2021. Then it was Mexico in September 2021. Then in 2022, there was also the freedom of all the women who had been criminalized in El Salvador mm -hmm. for years for miscarriages and stillbirths. And then um, last year in 2023, Honduras uh, legalized emergency contraception, which might be small, but for a country, Honduras, that had 10 years of criminalization of emergency contraception yeah. was huge. And then another decision of the Supreme Court of Mexico went one step further, saying that abortion not only should be not criminalized, but also should be provided by the government as a health service. So really, the landscape has changed completely. And in all of these countries, the green and the movement for supporting abortion rights has been one of the most powerful ways. And you see the green everywhere. So that's what has become the, the green wave. And even when Roe failed, you start seeing the green popping up in the United States. And yes, as an immigrant who was living in New York and I never expected that we'll have to have this fight in the United right. States. One of the first thing that I did was just bring my box of pañuelos to the protest in New York and just start giving them away because I knew that uh, the power they use in a symbol could have yes. to fight this one. Yes. Yeah, I, I love it. I have a few myself and uh, it works well because gender justice's colors are green and blue. So perfect. perfect. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're happy to also uh, take up the 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 green panuelo. Um, I am wondering, you know, in thinking about the changes that the green wave has brought about, um, what do you feel like has been the most significant change? You know, is it about how the law has changed? Is it about how the, if it's changed culture or, you know, the mobilization, the way people have seen that they're uh, direct action has led to change? And, and maybe that's a trick question because it's actually all of them, but you know, is there anything that really kind of stands out to you as uh, being the most significant impact of, mm -hmm. of this movement? I mean, the impact, yes, is in changing of laws, which mm -hmm. also eliminates a narrative in the head of people that abortion is something bad. Because right. when things are legal, 
they technically are okay, right? That there is mm-hmm. just this idea that, oh, well, if it's allowed, it's because it's good. So it just really has helped to change a lot of the narrative. But what I think is more significant is not about the impact of the change, but it's in the movement itself. Mm-hmm. And it's then learning from the activists has changed the way that we fight. Mm-hmm. It has changed the way that we work. Mm-hmm. So I think that for many years, we thought that putting uh, all of our efforts toward changing legal and human rights standards was going to be our solution. Right. And I think that what we learned from the Argentina effort is that you really need to combine a lot of the efforts in order to create success. You need mm-hmm. to think about communications and communications, maybe not for everybody, maybe multiple campaigns in multiple efforts, multiple outlets. You need to think about um, also uh, mobilization as a way to pressure people. You need to be, think about creating unlikely allies mm-hmm. in government, in doctors, in people who usually you will not talk to. You need to really be a lot more strategic than just think that by doing one little one thing, even if you're doing it really well, that's going to be enough. And what all these fights have in common in all the countries with with all different contents is that they all involve um, a multi, multi tactical approach of how we had these fights. Yeah, well, that resonates with me a lot because that is very much uh, our approach of gender justice and evident through our unrestricted Minnesota campaign, which was really catalyzed by filing a lawsuit challenging the state's restrictions on abortion. But we knew that would be most effective if we were also organizing and doing public education and communication around it. So that is kind of the model that we found to Mm -hmm. be really successful. It's like you can't just pick one tool. You need to figure out how to connect the tools together and kind of move them in concert. And, and you were very successful. Yes. Proving <laughs> the point, right? Yes. And then it's just it's that idea. You were successful also in circumstances that seem unlikely to be successful. Yes. So I think that this is fascinating. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, it's really interesting to see all those parallels. Mm-hmm. One one thing you mentioned, the communications aspect, and and uh, I, I had mentioned to you earlier, it was I was in Colombia just mm-hmm. over a year ago, and one of the Organizations I loved learning a lot about was uh, Las Jacarandas, mm-hmm. yes, yes, yes. Um, which, as I understand, it, combines legal support and advocacy with a really robust social media campaign yes. and visibility effort mm-hmm. to share information, not just about reproductive health and access, but just broadly about, you know, women's rights mm-hmm. and issues that affect reproductive health. And they're my favorite Instagram account that I follow. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're the best. I, they're yeah, so yeah. funny and smart. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I just love it. I rem- and when we were there, they were asking us a lot of questions about disinformation mm-hmm. and how we see combating dis- disinformation in the United States as a part mm-hmm. of our work. And it actually challenged me a lot because we do talk about the impact of disinformation, but I don't know that at least for gender justice in our work, I don't know that we see our role as being specifically about combating disinformation. Mm-hmm. So it, it was it was just a really interesting conversation. And I wonder, you know, since you work internationally, but also are here in the United mm-hmm. States, how you think about that, the, the effect of disinformation mm-hmm. campaigns by our opponents and kind of what we get right or missing the mark on here in the U.S.? Yes. 
So Hacker Endless is one of our partners mm-hmm. at WEX, and we work closely with them, and we love their work. And yeah. what I think is most revolutionary about them, and they, because there were other accounts and other groups that were part of the Columbia fight, like mm-hmm. this was a, a bigger group, Causa Justa was the group who filed the, the complaint, then there were other smaller efforts being done at the regional level. But I think that what was so revolutionary of Hacker Endless is that they were able to conquer TikTok. <laughs> And the reason why this is important and mm-hmm. it's connected to this information is because TikTok is the number one channel that the opposition use mm-hmm. in the war right, to pass misinformation. Mm-hmm. And it's, for me, when I see the parallels of narratives from a school born in Arizona or in Florida to what I hear in Peru or in Colombia or in Argentina, coming from the other side, I know there's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence right. that they are using the same messaging, but just in English and in Spanish, that they are using similar channels, very charming looking TikTok accounts, usually men and young people targeting young people, right? Yep. Into like information based, not this information, it's fake, right? And it's, uh, and it's hate the speech and it's like, as bad as it comes, but they make it seem so nice and so good right. and so naive. So I think they, there is a problem because we are not connecting mm-hmm. how much those uh, discourse are being coordinated by the other side. Absolutely and we, agree. They make them look local, but they are not local, right? They, they are all connected. And I think that one of the things that we need to do more of, and now Hakarandas is teaching a lot of, of the way that they have been able to conquer TikTok, um, to other groups is mm-hmm. to learn how to conquer TikTok in our side. Mm-hmm. And and I see efforts in many groups in the United States um, doing it, but I have not seen an effort as successful as the one of Hakarandas. Yeah. Um, and one of the best ways to combat this information is have good information that is as accessible, as easy, but as viable, as funny, as, yes. you know, as reliable. Yeah. Because that's the thing. Their approach, and I have seen some of their workshops, is like, if it's not entertaining, it's nobody's going to watch it. Nobody's yeah. going to watch it. <laughs> to understand abortion as an entertainment issue is something that requires you to think completely outside the box. Yes, much more creatively. Yeah. Well, and your point about how much the opposition is connected and coordinated behind the scenes, and it's often invisible to yes. people, uh, reminds me of the crisis pregnancy center yes. movement and in industry in the United States and the way in which it's exactly that. It looks hyper-local. It looks like just a, a little clinic on your corner in your in your town, but it's actually part of this national and international network mm-hmm. of organizations that have a political purpose despite looking mm-hmm. like looking like they're just trying to help pregnant people. So that is one of the things that we are always trying to figure out how to tackle, even down to like how do we help people recognize that this is a yeah. anti-abortion crisis pregnancy yeah. center and not a real clinic? Yeah. It's it's not that easy. You can't just say, well, it has this name. Yeah, that means that they're they're good at disguising themselves. So we have, unfortunately, CPCs uh, uh, all over Latin America, specifically in Mexico, okay. and some in Argentina and in Colombia. Of course, the countries where you advance right, right. The abortion access, then it gets filled with CPCs. Coming from a toolkit that you can get from um, many of the organizations in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, they are all connected and yep. linked, and you download the toolkit, how to create your local CPC. 
So it works in the same way. And it's, and that's one of the parts where I believe the conference like this um, and uh, spaces like this one, and even conversational was the, like, like the one that we are having is so important. And it's because they are connecting the dots. We need to connect the dots. And yes, one of the, and we are having similar issues with CPCs, um, but one of the tactics that, that I think that we are exploring and we are trying to do when it comes to to CPCs, and we are learning that from some of the efforts actually in New York, mm-hmm. is the majority of people gets to CPCs not necessarily through walking by, mm-hmm. but because they do a Google search. Yep. And I think that we need to work with Google mm-hmm. to be able to make sure that there are some warnings that are very clear and state that these places don't don't provide abortions. Google is not going to pay attention to Latin American organizations, but it will pay attention to U.S. organizations. <laughs> well, like, boy, yeah. And I mean, in New York right now, thanks to work that Attorney General, if you Google mm-hmm. search for an abortion, it will get you a warning. It does provide abortion or it doesn't provide abortion. So I do think that for us, it's important to learn a lot of that and try mm-hmm. to pressure Google and Meta and all of those organizations to to also be part of the fight against CPCs because yes. I think that they have a role into creating and helping to create this trap for pregnant people. I am curious, kind of shifting to courts and mm-hmm. to legal frameworks, mm-hmm. gender justice is a, is a legal organization and we specifically, you know, bring cases in state courts because mm-hmm. our federal judicial system has really gone off the rails and it's not an avenue for making much progress at the moment. And so one of the things I think about a lot is the difference between the rights framework that exists okay. in the United States and the human rights framework yeah. that yeah. Uh, underlies the systems in, in many other countries, especially in Latin America. And I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about kind of those, the differences yeah. and in, in particular, like what the human rights framework makes possible in other yeah. places that we don't have here. I think that one of the main, for me, shocking realities of the legal systems and the way they at least was regulated abortion at the federal level before this role, I am, I am not as familiar with the state level regulations, mm-hmm. but in general, was this idea that was about no intervention by the state, mm-hmm. right? That was the, the basis of the regulation. It was like privacy, it was the government and nobody should yes. be involved in your decision which is exactly the opposite of what it was in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Because we believe that the state, it has human rights frameworks as based on the idea that the state has duties and obligations to their citizens. Right. And a lot of the work that was done for many years for multiple activists and lawyers was to create the standards to make sure the abortion was included under a health right. Right. This is also shocking. In Latin America, we consider health a human right. I right. It's part of all of our constitutions. And that needs to be provided by the state. And it know the the rules of how it needs to be provided are very clear. It needs to be accessible. It needs to be adequate. It needs to be uh, of quality. It needs to be cultural adapt- adaptable. And if you think that that is health and abortion is healthcare, which it is, then that is the duty of the state. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to be clear, and, I, and I, every time I talk about the advances in Latin America, I, 
I also want to make sure that we are not painting the wrong picture. And it's, yes, we have made a lot of progress legally. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have some good examples of access, but access is still the biggest barrier that, that we have. And I think that nobody has been able to fully crack access. Mm-hmm. But we need to, to choose which fights we fight first and how we do it. And, and I think that for us, the first fight was legalizing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the countries where we have been able to legalize and also incorporate to some level, Colombia, Mexico, and Argentina aren't the best ones. The abortions are not only legal, but they are provided in public hospitals. Mm-hmm. They are free. Yes. You go to the clinic and they give you an abortion and, and that's it. You're not having to fight for Medicaid nothing. coverage. You don't have to fight for insurance coverage. Nothing right. of that, right? right? Because it's included into the service. Right. So yes, there is still challenges, especially for rural areas. There is still clinics that try to create barriers for you. Mm-hmm. But in general, there is... This idea this part of the health system that's offering by the government. So that is just really one of the biggest difference and the biggest advantages that you have when you use a human rights framework, because you are not telling the government, don't get involved. You're telling the government, don't get involved in my decision, but this, but how I execute that decision, either because I decide to continue my pregnancy and therefore I also need protections yeah. as a pregnant person, as a pregnant woman, I also, my child also need childbirth, you know, like yeah. all the protections that you want to have when you are pregnant, you also need to have the same protections if you decide to end your pregnancy. Yes. And you also want to do it with the highest level of care that's available and the state has an obligation to fulfill that. And I think that is the biggest difference and mm-hmm. um, and it's something that at least give us the grounds to keep fighting for access. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that, um, you know, before the Dobbs decision and Roe being overturned, I think that was the focus for most of us was on how do we remove restrictions and increase access. And I worked for many years to try and repeal the Hyde Amendment, which bans Medicaid coverage for abortion and really is, you know, puts insurmountable barriers in front of uh, people who face the most barriers financially in particular to abortion. So it's painful now to be having to go back to all the fronts. We have to fight for legality as well as continuing to fight for access. And even in states like Minnesota, where uh, we have aligned our laws to be supportive of abortion, that doesn't necessarily translate into everyone who needs care having access to care. Um, This session that we're coming into legislatively, our top priority is to require all insurance plans to cover abortion, for instance. In our state exchange, none of the plans available on the state exchange men, men sure uh, include explicitly the coverage for abortion. It's like we're in a state where Medicaid covers abortion, but you, you it's hard to find out if your private insurance is going to cover it. And that just is really, you know, so it's an example of kind of we have made a lot of advancements, especially in the past year. And yet there's so much more work to be done. Um, and also removing restrictions is one thing, but having a healthcare infrastructure that can meet the needs of not only Minnesotans, but then people who are traveling to Minnesota from out of state is kind of the next frontier and is, is, is a huge concern and an issue for us. Um, do you see that kind of like healthcare infrastructure, like doctors Mm -hmm. being trained and and those, that's kind of some of the. Yeah, the so, work happening now. So there are two things to to everything that you are saying. I will 
answer your question later. I will start with it first part. But it was um, a lot of the challenges that we have right now in Latin America is trying to make sure that the ways in which the right of abortion was chipped away little by little in mm-hmm. Texas, in the United States, yes. doesn't happen to us. Yes. And I have been really trying, I learned about trap laws just because I was living here. Yes. Nobody in Latin America knows about trap laws. Right. Or very few people know. Like it's just something that is not common use of language. And when you start talking about trap laws with the advocates in Latin America, then you start saying like, oh yes, that makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. And I think they shifting this idea that we won the fight and that that's over. Uh-huh. It's something that's very important for, for us to have. Like, no, it's not over. And yeah. that you're not going to attack it necessarily by uh, by changing the law that we just passed. The Hyde Amendment was the biggest damage that the opposition did to, to abortion access and abortion yes. rights, right? So, like, how we make sure that something like that doesn't happen in the countries? Because you will know, you... I think that you don't see the impact when it's happening at the moment, but you only see it and later on. So I think the learning from that work that many advocates like you were doing to try to like restore mm-hmm. access is going to be very important for us as we face this new reality. And then um, going back to your question in terms of um, the level of infrastructure and doctors, there are many organizations that are dedicated of working with doctors, working and creating alliances with the medical personnel. Mm-hmm. And when I say personnel, I am talking from the guard who is going to let you in into the hospital. Right. To like the doctor who is going to perform the abortion. Right. Because you encounter barriers in all exactly. the layers the, the of yes. the system has been one of the work that many organizations like IPAS and, and uh, even uh, International Plant Parenthood Federation, FOSS, many organizations that work with the medical community, they dedicate their lives to do this. Yes. So um, there are hospitals um, that we call friendly hospitals, and mm-hmm. it's where organizations like Hakarandas, for instance, refers right. all the cases that they get. So when they, they have a hotline and to get a case of somebody who was denied the service, they're like, okay, go to this friendly hospital. There's a hospital that already has been trained. Right. And they already have received the support in where they are not going to be facing a lot of the barriers. Um, so that does exist. But yeah. the other part that has been a game changer is access to medication abortion, mm-hmm. right? And the networks that support self-managed abortion, mm-hmm. um, which were networks that existed before it was legal. I actually was asked this question by a group of um, advocates in the United States, and mm-hmm. they were like, how the networks existed? And I was like, well, they just existed, right? And they were like, through relationships. Through relationships. And they were like, but you know, how was the system? It was like, no, it was just no system. It was like a group of people in one stop saying, hey, do you have medicine or no? Like then it became right. signal, then it became wire, you know, whatever when you're communicating securely. Yeah. And they never thought about if it was legal or not. They never thought about if you need to receive consult. They never thought about like any of those reasons. Right. They just thought there is a market when it's an abortion and we need to find a way to give care to this person. So those networks and now are in countries where it's legal, are also being integrated into the system. Mm-hmm. They are not being displaced no, by the public system, but they are kind of fine, especially in Argentina. Mm-hmm. They are being integrated into the system as another way to to 
to to provide services. Mm-hmm. It's still not perfect. It's still like there is still multiple challenges, yeah. but I think this is also important because I don't think that we, as much as we like institutional care and, and Latin Americans in general, Latinx community likes to go to the doctor. It's like something that makes us feel safe, even mm-hmm. as we face multiple barriers going to the doctor. I still think it's important that community care in a different level to also be integrated into the access solution. Yeah. One of the things I think about and talk about a lot in, in Minnesota, to your point about all of the layers of barriers that exist in the system, we are seeing after the Dobbs decision, many of our more mainstream healthcare providers in Minnesota really being motivated and moved by that decision to mm-hmm. say, oh, well, we should start providing abortion, again, which mm-hmm. for decades they had said, great, like, let, let the abortion clinics do that. Yeah. We're totally fine with it being separated from yeah. mainstream medicine. And and now, and that's been one of the things I think is a positive shift. Absolutely. So they're saying, okay, let's figure out how can we bring this back into our full menu of services that we offer. But they are facing a lot of different challenges around that. I talked to a nurse at a local hospital whose challenge is that the person who schedules people for the operating room Mm -hmm. is anti-abortion and will delay those patients getting access, you know, and, and I have conversations. I'll say, what can you do about it? I'm like, well, I can't, we can't really write a law to deal with the stigma of the people who work inside a hospital or, you know, it's at least not what we already kind of have in our yeah. playbook, right? Yeah. So, I, but I, I feel like that's maybe a place where those of us who are in, you know, what we call like access states mm-hmm. in the United States and are looking at the opportunity of reintegrating abortion into mainstream medicine, like maybe there's also something to learn from each other Absolutely. there. And let me tell you, we tried the law thing and they did solve the issue. Exactly. So we tried, it was about regulation, right? Right, and then right. Seen as lawyers, and I'm a lawyer myself, it's like trying to solve everything by the laws. And it's like, uh, let's regulate it. Let's, and let's try to create penalties if people are not fulfilling the law mm-hmm. and nothing has worked. What right. it has really been successful is to work at the humanity level, mm-hmm. humanizing yes. abortion and doing one-to-one work with those hospitals, with those nurses, mm-hmm. with those people. Yeah. To at least they might not become on your side, but they but might stop being a barrier. So yeah. like really doing that community work of going one-to-one and trying to train them and trying to tell them why it's important and trying to convince them to stop being a barrier. Right. It has gone us to places where now you have friend ho- friendly hospitals at the entire mm-hmm. system. So I think that that is like, it's work that takes a long time, yeah. And it, but it's a lot of efforts, and there is also not enough funding for that type of work because it's very hard to like show results of convincing a nurse. You don't, you don't show that beautiful bell signing ceremony, and you, yeah. What was measure of success? Well, one nurse is especially in the That's extremely meaningful. Extremely meaningful. So I think that that is just very, very, very important work. Yeah. Well, and on the self-managed abortion, I feel like that's obviously another I know, you know, even in anticipation of the Dobbs decision, a lot of us were talking about and thinking mm-hmm. about, oh, what can we learn from mm-hmm. the, uh, those wonderful networks and systems mm-hmm. that exist? And I do see some really increasing education and that coordination around self-managed abortion. I'm curious, you know, to shift just a little bit and kind of start to wind down our conversation here. 
just in terms of the United States position of prominence on the global stage. And I know for a long time, we were seen as leading in some ways Mm -hmm. around abortion rights. How does what's happening here now change the the Mm -hmm. urgency or the the feeling in in other countries about the approach or kind of the urgency to make Mm -hmm. progress? So I think that there are, for me, two things. And is, yes, the United States has had, and I think it's important to recognize, an adverse effect in its foreign policy in many countries. Mm-hmm. I, I like um, um, Some good and some bad. It's, yeah. I mean, so I would say an adverse effect by first recognizing the bad, but then yes. so it's the same. Yes. They also have been realized for many years mm-hmm. in our fight for abortion justice. Um, we, the U.S. was key in helping us to free the women in El Salvador by just including the violation in the state Department Human Rights Report. So like, I think that the alliance has worked mm-hmm. to certain levels. And one of the biggest impact that we have seen in the, in the Global South about the, the Dobbs decision is that there is no clarity for officials at the embassies mm. all over Latin America, what they can do and what they cannot do regarding abortion, right. how they can talk and not talk about the issue. And even though there is no gag rule, which right. is a rule that exists every time that there is somebody in the federal government that doesn't uh, care about abortion rights, and um, usually Republican presidents are the ones who put it. As soon yeah. as there is change in office, like, right, it gets sacked and left and back and forth yeah. like years. Yeah. And it's this rule that doesn't allow, so the GAC rule is a, a rule that doesn't allow organizations who receive U.S. funding to talk about abortion. Not even to provide abortions, to even talk about abortions. So even though right now there is no GAC rule in effect, there is a lot of misinformation in the U.S. government officials across the globe because they also have talked with counterparts in Africa mm-hmm. about how much they can, the U.S. can advocate for fighting in other countries for abortion mm-hmm. rights. And that is really difficult for us because in many countries, the U.S. was a very good ally in this fight. And now I feel that we lost an ally. Mm-hmm. And on the other part is international press has been another tool that we have used often in all of our fights in Latin America. And right now, because the state of abortion rights in the United States is very hard to get coverage for anything that's happening outside the United States. So we need to find a new school. We need to find a connection. We need to find... Mm. And that also is creating impact because other news day, sometimes something horrible happened in Brazil, something horrible happened in Peru, will have made international news, which is a tool that we will use to fight right. locally. And we have not been able to get those success as much. Wow. That's really, that's really interesting. Definitely not something I, that was on my radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, the media landscape has changed so much since Dobbs and as a, you know, state-based domestic advocate, it's been like, oh, finally, the media will talk about abortion in the United States because forever it just felt like no one would cover it. Even our reporters who cover what happens at our state capitol before Dobbs often would be like, oh, we don't want to talk about abortion. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to talk about what might happen during session around abortion. But it's going to, you know, even when abortion isn't in a bill directly, it is 
was often a political tool that uh, was used. And so it's refreshing to be in a new media environment (laughs) where it's like, oh, finally, we can really talk about it. And and you need to talk about abortion. But I think that it's important to understand that the abortion rights fight is as local and as global at the same time. Right. right? And that the enemy is the same. Right. Everywhere. And they are connected. And there is a system. And and I think that is very, when we talk about what is happening in Minnesota, or in Arizona, or in Florida, to also think and always make reference, well, this is also happening in multiple places around the world. And that's yeah. very important to, to be connected. Um, I also think that there is um, something really interesting about abortion being a popular issue. Uh-huh. Right, this idea that now people want to care about abortion and talk about abortion, and that is something that happened to to us um, during the Argentina campaign specifically. And it was all this sudden you have all these people just wanting to talk about abortion. And I think that at sometimes, as somebody who has been in the fight for so long, mm-hmm. you you can have maybe an instinct of protect your fight. Right. Uh, and say like, no, 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 that's not the way that we talk about it. This is not how we do it. Um, and I actually think that one of the biggest lessons that I learned from the movements of La Campaña and from Magdalanis, specifically in Argentina, was, no, this is the result of our success, that abortion is popular. So let them talk, let them say there is more people in right. the fight. And they might be imperfect in the way that they speak and they just might you know, say things that we have overcome for many years. They, we agreed that that's not the way that we talk about it. But now you're having people who never care about this issue, right. making them their issue. And that's how you create a movement that is a massive movement. Right. Yeah. We need to be willing to create that bigger time, create exactly. that space for exactly. people to come in and exactly. be connected and like they're a part, part of the work. Yeah. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I so appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and give us the opportunity to learn more about what's happening. I, I know uh, Americans in particular can be very navel-gazing and very <laughs> uh, focused on what's happening, right, you know, in our in our own backyards. And it's been really inspiring for me to have the opportunity to learn from from you and from the other advocates here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for caring about this. I I. I absolutely believe that we are only going to win the moment that we are all connected to each other mm-hmm. and that we start learning from each other and that we recognize that we have a fight that's bigger than us Yes, at the individual level and something that's bigger than us requires a bigger army to fight. Yes. And and that's what we are building. Um, and, and I am really, really... And know as well of all the work that you have done in Minnesota in circumstances that seem very unlikely. So I am really excited to see all of this happening. Thank you. Thank you so much. Is there, um, how can our listeners learn more about the Women's Equality Center? Uh, I, we don't have like social a media. We have a website, but there's yeah. so much there. I think that I do have personal social media that I use for work. So no. and you can follow me at Paula Avil, P-A-U-A-V-I-L-G, both in Instagram and in Twitter. But honestly, what I think is more important, if you start following the hashtags around the Green Wave and around La Marea Verde, you're going to see the work 
of all the activists all over Latin America. They are telling their stories either in Instagram or either in social media. And, and I think it's very important that we share all the content yes. all together at the same time, because this is also a way to, to buy back some of that shadow banning that happens right. around our issues. Wonderful. Well, we'll put those in the show notes so people can find them and follow, follow folks. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Gender Justice Brief. This show is produced by Gunter Janel and Audrey Griegas. To keep up with our work in real time, be sure to check out the show notes for where to find us on the web, social media, and to sign up for text updates. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share to help us spread our message. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.